this is part six of a series we're calling Superman, What Makes Jesus the One. If this is your first time here, don't worry. It's not like walking into a movie halfway through. Every uh, sermon, every message stands on its own. And my baseline minimum hope for this series is that at a minimum, you grow in your understanding or awareness of who Jesus was as a man. Like if you came across him casually on the street or at work or if you were just like acquaintances, like what you would notice about his personality. Because we know some things are true about Jesus for sure. Like no one argues, even the most hardcore atheist really doesn't argue anymore that Jesus uh, existed. You know, like we know he existed. We know uh, he was a, a Jewish man in the first century. We know that he was probably poor. We know that he was a stonemason or a carpenter. We know that he had a family. We know that he had brothers and sisters. We know he made a living. We know he had appetites. We know that he died on a cross. All these things historically are things that we know. And so there are things you can know for sure about Jesus. So if anybody ever asks you, can I know Jesus for sure, the answer is yes. He was a historical guy really lived. So at a minimum, I hope you come away from this series with a greater understanding of who he was and what you would notice about his personality if you just came across him. But best case scenario, there's more going on here than that, right? My real win here, like my, my best hope for this series is that some of you experience a, a kind of awakening, uh, an eye-opening moment where you realize that not only can Jesus be known, but you like him so much that you're compelled to follow him, to spend your life imitating him, so that everything we talk about, you want more of, right? So every week we talk about a different personality trait. I hope you leave here wanting to become more like that. So when we talk about Jesus as an intellectual, I hope you leave here and go, you know, to Amazon.com and buy a couple books and you become more of a reader than you were before, more of an intellectual in search of wisdom like Jesus, Right? It's like when we talked about his intensity, I hope that you leave here more intense about the things that break the heart of God and making those things more a part of your priorities in your life. I hope you want to be more like him. And today we're going to talk about Jesus' intentionality. He was a very intentional man. And I think sometimes intentionality is something we lack. Focus is another way to talk about intentionality. Focus is on everyone's minds, right? Like focus is the subject of so many articles in like American Psychology Today review and things like that and like uh, Entrepreneur, you know, magazine and stuff like that. All the business magazines say you need to hire people that can focus because nobody can focus anymore apparently um, because of how short our attention spans have gotten. I was uh, watching this uh, documentary on Netflix and uh, this last week, it was about Warren Buffett the billionaire investor uh, who lives in Nebraska in the same house that he bought in the 60s or something for $30,000. And, uh, and he uh, drives, you know, a pretty modest car and, and eats McDonald's breakfast every morning and pays cash for it. Like, uh, uh, he has the exact amount of cash that he needs in the car with him every morning to buy a McDonald's breakfast. I'm not real sure how that works. But, you know, uh, that's who he is, right? And, and I was so intrigued by the, the part of this this documentary where he and Bill Gates became friends. Because he and Bill Gates, I mean, they're both rich, mega rich, right? But they're in different sectors. They're different guys. But they became 
friends at a party that Bill Gates' parents threw a dinner party. And there were like a dozen really successful people around the table at this dinner party. And Bill Gates' dad uh, started, before the meal was served, he started kind of this get-to-know-you thing by handing each one of the people a note card and said, I want you to write on this note card the one factor, the one thing that made your success possible, the one trait of yours that contributed most to your success. And so they all wrote different things, right? Some of them wrote a whole paragraph on the card. Some of them wrote one line. And everybody had different answers except... Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates both wrote the same thing on their card. One word, a one-word answer to this somewhat complicated question. They both wrote the word focus. Focus is the one single most contributing factor to the most important contributing factor to their success. And when I heard it, I will tell you, I had the usual reaction that I have when I read or hear someone say something like that. My heart kind of sunk in my chest because I'm good at a lot of things, but I suck at focusing. <laughs> and so, you know, I've always wanted to be somewhat successful. I've always, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be excellent at whatever it is that you're doing. I've always wanted that. But I've always been told since I was very young that focus was not a strength of mine, that I was unable to focus. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of who I've always been, I guess. I've always been told that's who I, I am, and it's true to some degree. I'm the guy that gets on the computer to find out more about, you know, Bill Gates, as I did this week, and this is all a true story, what I'm about to tell you. I Googled Bill Gates because I wanted to know more about his life, and particularly about his faith, because I had heard he was an atheist, but I wanted to be sure. And so I went on Google and said, you know, Bill Gates, wiki, and, and uh, one of the first things I read about Bill Gates is that he loves the opera. Uh, which reminded me that my wife has been begging me to take her to the opera for a few months. And so I opened a new tab and started searching for opera tickets. I was like, you know what I mean? I was like, well, uh, Valentine's Day is coming. I don't really have any plans. I mean, y'all don't tell her I said that, but I don't have any plans. And I thought maybe I could take her to the opera, and that's my win on, opera, on uh, Valentine's Day. And so I started, uh, you know, searching for opera tickets for the Houston Opera. And uh, I was shocked. I had no idea how expensive the opera is. Did y'all know that? I had no idea how expensive. I thought it would be like, you know, an Astros game. It is not like an Astros game. And, you know, and you got to buy a tuxedo or something, I guess, because I don't have one of those either. So, and I was like, I've never understood. I, did, I didn't see that coming. And I, I guess it's because I've never been to the opera. Uh, not just the Houston opera, but like any opera. I've never been to an opera, right? So, and I, I started wondering in that moment, like, why have I never been to an opera? Like, why did my parents not expose me to the opera? Do they not love me or, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and then I started thinking, well, maybe they were just poor. And so I searched for that book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, and I wanted to read up on it. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, is because we grew up in Red Lick and there's not really an opera to speak of in Red Lick, Texas. Uh, and that got me to thinking about my childhood, you know, and like how I was raised out in the country and how much I appreciate the fact that I was raised on dirt roads and I could just leave in the morning and come back by sundown and nobody really worried about me, you know, it was such a freedom that I had when I was a kid. And so I, I decided to see what Red Lick has become since I left it. And so I I Googled in another search tab, Red Lick, Texas. Because when I was there, the population was 250 people, tiny little town. But I was shocked to find that Red Lick has grown to over 1,000 people in population. Can you believe that? 400% growth and since, since I was there as a kid. And they've even got 
paved roads and things, you know, less cows, I guess. I don't know, but like a lot has changed in Red Lake, Texas. And then I thought, oh my gosh, Eric, I spent 20 minutes searching Red Lake, Texas. I got to get back on task. Focus, Eric, focus. And so I got back to shopping for opera tickets. And, uh, and, and so there's another opera. The one that's there now is sold out, but there's another one coming in April. Uh, and the picture of the one on the Houston Opera's webpage, like the, the picture of it, it looked like there were stormtroopers in this opera. And I was like, I know there's no such thing as a Star Wars opera, but man, if there was, that's an opera I would go to, right? And so, of course, I had to figure out if there's ever been a Star Wars opera. So truly, you can check my search history. I open another tab and search for Star Wars opera. There's no such thing as a Star Wars opera, but there's something called a Star Wars space opera that you can buy on Amazon for $39.99. And it looks something like this. You don't know the power of the dark side. So I have no idea why it's called an opera. It doesn't even look or sound like an opera, but this is a Star Wars space opera, and it can be yours. I set out, you can turn it off now, thank you. I set out to search for the faith and life of Bill Gates, and I ended up here <laughs> with the Star Wars space opera. And I wish I could tell you that's an outlier, and that's not how it normally goes. It's exactly how it normally goes. Um, you know, when I'm feeling, you know, a little bit unfocused, that's exactly how it goes. And I've always been that way, a little bit of a daydreamer. I guess a good way, way to put it is I'm a creative, but uh, that's being generous. When I was in school, right, I, I could, the lecture would start and my mind would go down this rabbit hole, right, and I, I would be out for the whole class. Like I was there, but I would just be checked out for the whole class, right. And, uh, and so it was really hard for me to focus. I was told that I was just bad at focusing. And so they diagnosed me as ADD and they put me on medication. And this is not an anti-medication sermon. You'll never get that from me. Um, I think that's, that's great and it works for a lot of people. It certainly uh, helped me um, for a time. But uh, I, I think what troubles me is that I spent most of my life thinking I was just not good at focusing or that I, I couldn't focus. And what life has taught me, what I've learned over the time, over time, more recently, I've learned that focus uh, isn't a static skill. Focus isn't something you're necessarily born with or without. So it's not a gene that you either have or don't. And if you have it, then you're lucky. And if you don't, then you'll just never figure it out. Focus is, I think, more accurately thought of as a muscle that can be strengthened and stretched. And some of you might be born, I don't know, with a greater proclivity or tendency to focus more. Uh, maybe you have a stronger, you know, uh, focus muscle DNA. Um, but all of us are born with that muscle and all of us are able to strengthen and stretch it and to grow in how we are intentional, to grow in how we are focused uh, and how we prioritize and live our lives. Now, in my experience, Focus isn't about being a static skill, something you're born with. Focus is all about purpose. In my experience, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but the times that I struggle the most with being uh, focused is when I don't have a clear purpose in front of me. Or when the mission that I'm on is just 
not compelling or interesting or inspiring to me. You ever been there? Where you just kind of drift? And this is how, honestly, this is how some addictions start, right? When you just feel idle in whatever season you're in because the purpose that you're supposed to have, it just seems unclear or muddy. And so you have a thousand different directions you could go and you just decide to stay where you are instead, you know, or go somewhere else. And if the mission that you're on is just not compelling or you don't believe in it, you don't feel it, then it's very easy to become, you know, an unfocused, unintentional person. Um, that, is, that is my experience anyway. That's how we fall into those Google rabbit holes. But I will say this. What I've learned is that when my, when my purpose is clear and when my mission is inspiring, I'm not just focused, man. I'm a force to be reckoned with. I'm a warrior. Like, I can't be stopped. I get out of bed thinking about it. I obsess over it. I'm 100% in. And so maybe my problem all along wasn't focus. Maybe my problem was a sense of purpose. Maybe some of you are in that same place where you're living your life, and sometimes you're just not sure what you're living for, and that gets you into some trouble. You chase down these paths randomly. When uh, the story was just getting started, before we even had a, a name or really a congregation, when we were just a launch team, we sat around, and there were 20, 30, sometimes 40 of us, sat around talking about our mission. What's our, what's our purpose going to be here at the story? And we kicked around some very generic mission statements before we actually landed on our own. We were like, well, we're here to welcome all people to the kingdom of God. And that sounds really nice, except it's just really boring and very generic. And other ones were like just a little creepy, like uh, we're here to tell a love story to the world. You know, that kind of a thing. And that was, uh, was not quite clear either. And so we just kept having to press, and it took us a while to settle in on a mission statement that really inspired us, right? So we had to press into that passion. What was, what was it that brought us into that room together? What was it that made us think that the churches we belonged to weren't a right fit for us in its entirety, right? What made us want more? And we realized over time is that we shared this passion. We, we all kind of had this feeling that the church was missing something. We had this knowledge that 80 to 85% of our Houstonian neighbors and friends and family members and co-workers on Sunday morning have no Christian community that they share. You know, they don't go to church. Not that going to church is salvation, but they don't have a community where they can grow deeper with their, in their faith, right, with other people. So 80 to 85% of our Houstonian neighbors don't regularly go to church somewhere or belong to a Christian community. And so we realized that we had this shared passion. And so we prayed and God's spirit gave us the courage and conviction to just claim our mission as specific as it was. And, and we got some pushback for being so specific. But this was the mission that we claimed, that we are here to inspire non-religious Houstonians to play their part in the story of God's love in Jesus Christ. And we got some pushback here and there. Take out that non-religious word. It's too exclusive, you know. And, and, but we needed to focus we needed a specific purpose to rally around, and we knew that it was non-religious people, nominally religious people, spiritual but not religious people, agnostics, atheists, and people that just check none on the religious affiliation box on the census data. We knew that's who God was calling us to reach, and we knew that was our passion that set our hearts on fire. It gave us focus. Every day since we named this mission, I get out of bed thinking about it. 
It's the first thing I get out of bed thinking about is how am I going to lead this church in a way that we reach more non-religious people and inspire them to play their part in the story of God's love in Jesus. Every time Adrian chooses the songs on a Sunday morning, this is the thing that he thinks about, this mission. How can we sing songs in a way that leads non-religious people? to be inspired to follow Jesus. Every time we meet as a staff, our leadership, our, our volunteers, we all rally around this cause. We all want to answer the one question, how can we bring more non-religious people into relationship, active, meaningful relationship with Jesus? I've realized something over the last two years, you guys. It's been an awakening for me. You don't need to be a type A, super organized person to be focused. Focus is where desire and discipline meet purpose and passion. Focus is where desire and discipline meet purpose and passion. The only reason I bring all this up, I sound like a TED Talk so far, I realize that. The only reason I bring all of this up is because when we look at the personality of Jesus, what we see is fierce intention. Fierce focus. He was intentional about what it was he came to do. And so for us, it's very important when we understand Jesus, when we look at his life in the Gospels, that we know what his purpose was. Otherwise, we'll misinterpret what we read or what we hear about Jesus. Because I'm concerned about how we think of Jesus' purpose sometimes. When you think of Jesus' gatherings, like when he was teaching, I'm concerned that we misinterpret what was happening and we think that Jesus was some kind of a celebrity, like a faith healer kind of rolling into town like a circus. And there was like a tent and lights and he was all dressed in white and he was wearing diamonds and he'd hit people in the head and they were healed and like, you know, they passed the plate a few times. And I'm afraid we think of him more like, you know, like a Benny Hinn kind of a person. If you don't know who Benny Hinn is, you can Google him. In fact, I recommend Googling Benny Hinn Star Wars where he uses a lightsaber to heal people, truly the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So that's a true story. But don't do it now unless you just really have to and struggle with focus like your preacher does. So let me get back on topic. <laughs> All right. So uh, when, we, when we look at, uh, at Jesus, we need to know that he healed people, but healing was not his purpose. That's not why he got out of bed in the morning. Jesus drew crowds, large crowds, but that's not what set his heart on fire. The crowds, popularity, fame, it wasn't his purpose. He tells us clearly what his purpose was. One of the places that he tells us is in Mark chapter 1. And you can turn to Mark chapter 1 if you'd like in your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have a Bible, please take a free one from the lobby on your way out or just get up now and go get one if you need to. Um, those are free and those are donated to us and we'd love to make them yours. Um, Mark chapter 1, 32 to 39. It's also on your study guides or uh, on the screens. That evening, people brought to Jesus those who were sick or demon-possessed. The whole town, this is Capernaum, the whole town gathered near the door of the house he was in. He healed many who were sick with all kinds of diseases. Early in the morning, well before sunrise, Jesus rose and went to a deserted place where he could be alone in prayer. Simon, that's also Peter, Simon Peter, right? And those with him tracked him down. When they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. And he replied, let's head in the other direction to the nearby villages so that I can preach there too. That is why I've come. It's a big hint right there. That is why I've come. He traveled through Galilee preaching in synagogues, throwing out demons. 
So you can glean from this a few things. Mark chapter 1, that means this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's 30 years old. And his ministry is just beginning, like his, his career, he's kind of a second career preacher, right? He had this other career and now he's like gone all in, full-time ministry now. And this is right at the beginning. And they are in Capernaum, which was kind of Jesus' HQ, right, where he launched his ministry from. It was the home to one of the first churches after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. In Capernaum, it was right there in that house, in Peter's mother-in-law's house. Right before this passage, Peter got to, I mean, Jesus got to Peter's mother-in-law's house, and she's there sick or pretending to be sick, maybe because there's suddenly a house full of fishermen and construction workers, and maybe the smell just got her. Who knows? But Jesus heals her. She wakes up from whatever she was under, right? And, and, and of course, when you heal someone in a small town, it's like feeding that first stray cat. And it didn't take long for everyone within a five-mile radius who was sick or disabled to come to this house to get healed too. And so the thing just takes off, man, and the energy is palpable, and it's wall-to-wall inside Peter's mother-in-law's house. It's not a very big room. I've been in it before. It's, it's amazing to think of people packed in there like sardines and others just lining around the house. Suddenly, Jesus is up and coming. This is his moment. This is the moment he's been waiting for. He's suddenly going to be one of the most famous people in all of Judea. He's going to be a celebrity, right? And his disciples are just relishing their new role as the celebrity's entourage, right? They're like the, they're like the Secret Service. Peter's like wearing shades and like, you know, bumping people back. And like, you know, he's thinking like this is their new life, you know. The most famous guy in Judea is, is our boy. And so this is the moment, right? You can just imagine everybody buzzing in town. His town is set on fire by Jesus and his healing and his teaching. So what does Jesus do? He slips out the back door. He escapes. I picture it like Jesus says, you guys, I got to use the bathroom just a second. And he goes to the bathroom and he like climbs out the bathroom window and doesn't come back. And after a few minutes, the disciples are like knocking on the door like, Jesus, you know, and then they break it down and there's nobody in there. And so they have to come out and like make an excuse for him. And they tell the, the ravenous crowd, you know, he's going to be back. He's, he just needs a break. He'll be back on stage momentarily. Let's bring up our opening act, John the Baptist. Come back, you know, this kind of a thing to kind of keep people going, right? And so then it says Peter, Simon Peter and the others, they, uh, they tracked him down is the way you're, the, the version we just said, we just read says it. It's actually a word, a very common word that meant hunted. They hunted Jesus like you would hunt an animal. They hunted him. This was not a casual search. Jesus, you know, it wasn't like. <laughs> they hunted him. And they were angry and upset and incredulous that Jesus would run from his success like this. We know this because when Peter finds Jesus, what does he say to him? Peter finds Jesus and says, everyone's looking for you. This is it, man. We're going to be famous. I mean, you're going to be famous, right, that kind of a thing. And he's like, he's like missing his moment. Peter can't believe it. But that is not why Jesus came. Jesus said, we got to go to the next town and the next town and the next town. Because I've got to preach to these people. They need to know my message uh, because that is why I have come. This is, this is really, really important for us to understand. Because if you are inclined to believe that Jesus is primarily a miracle man who also happened to have some good things to say, rather than 
a teacher and a preacher who also happened to do some miracles? Whenever the time comes when you need a miracle and Jesus doesn't come through, you're going to be inclined to believe that he was never for real to begin with or that he doesn't care about you. Because that's what he is. He's a miracle worker, primarily, first and foremost. However, if what you believe about Jesus is that he's primarily a teacher and a preacher who came to give the world this gift of grace, to tell the world about the good news of God's salvation, about redemption and forgiveness and mercy, that no matter what happens to you when you need a miracle, whether you receive it or not, you will know with all your heart that Jesus is still who he said he was. And that the grace of God is the greatest and only miracle you will ever need. And that miracle is true. And so sometimes we uh, get mixed up and I think we set ourselves up for, we set our kids up for disappointment when we make Jesus into someone that he's not. As far as Jesus is concerned, the message is more important than the miracles. The message is more important than the miracles. So, so important, you guys. The message is more important than the miracles. If anything, Jesus did miracles to bring more people close so that he could teach the message. It was a means to an end, right? So he wasn't some kind of a snake oil salesman or some kind of a a tent revival faith healer guy. Uh, Jesus was a teacher and a preacher of great depth in giving people substance uh, in this gospel uh, to stake their lives too. So important that we get our heads around that. The message is more important than the miracles. Now, in Luke chapter 14, uh, Jesus' focus comes even into even greater clarity. Jesus is hanging out at a party. He's been invited to a party in Luke chapter 14. Luke is the gospel right after Matthew's. And uh, it's a little bit longer, and it came a little bit later. I mean, right after Mark's, a little bit longer, a little bit later than Mark. And it goes into greater detail. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus has been invited to this VIP party. We don't know why these VIP Pharisees invite Jesus to his party, to their party. Uh, we don't know if they're trying to trap him into doing something wrong. Maybe they get him a little, uh, give him a little too much to drink, and maybe he says the wrong thing, and they've got him where they want him. Or maybe they're trying to assimilate him into one of them, being one of them. You know, we don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus has a way of making parties awkward. Uh, <laughs> you ever been to one of those parties? <laughs> I have. Jesus, when he comes up at a party, always makes it awkward. Uh, no matter how he's brought up, any kind of party, Jesus will make it uncomfortable. And so uh, that's what he does at this party. Uh, the guys at the party are all trying to be really important, right? And so they all try to sit close to the host at the table. Whoever sat closest to the host was, uh, there was considered a more honorable place at the table. And Jesus just stands there laughing at them. He mocks them and makes fun of them. And when you mock and make fun of people that think they're very important people, you suddenly have their undivided attention. And the room falls dead. And Jesus uses his opportunity to tell a story to a bunch of VIPs at a dinner party. And this is how he starts his story, y'all. In Luke 14, verse 16, he says, One time there was a certain man who threw a dinner party. He's telling a story about a dinner party at a dinner party, so you know it's about to get real uncomfortable (laughs) up in here. 
And he says, the host of this party sent a servant out into the city to tell all the invited guests. These were guests that had already received their, save the dates, the pre-invited, you know, invitations, whatever. And, and he wanted them to know that it was time, that dinner was ready. Let's party. Let's go. It's all prepared. You don't have to do anything or bring anything. Just come and party. And so the servant goes out and tells the people that were invited about the party, and they all have their excuses. And the invited ones are, you know, they're representative of these religious people that were in Jesus' hearing. And the first one said, hey, I'd love to come. I'm really sorry. I've just, I bought some land and I got to go see this land. And the guy's like, you bought some land? Like, what do you think land looks like? You know, that kind of a thing. And, and then the second guy is like, I bought some oxen and I got to go see my oxen. And the guy's like, seriously, you bought oxen and you got to go see oxen. All right, go ahead. And then the third guy's like, I got married and my wife told me I got to be home, and he was like, okay, I get it. I totally get it. Go ahead and go home. And uh, then he goes home. The host goes and tells, or the, the servant goes and tells the host, uh, no one that you invited has come to your party. And the dinner party host, he's, he's furious, and he's heartbroken. And, and he uh, immediately sends the servant back out into the city. He says, go back to the city, but go to the city streets and go into the back alleys in the city and invite everyone you meet to my party. Go and invite everyone you meet to my party. Anyone within earshot of you should know about this party and they should know that they're invited. And the, the servant goes out and does that and he comes back to the host and says, I've done that and everybody that heard me, they've come to the party. They all are ready to feast with you at this dinner. But there's still room at the table, he says. Not every place is taken. And so the host tells the servant, go back out again. Go to the highway. Follow the highway out into the countryside. Go to Red Lick, Texas and places like it and invite everybody that you can in the countryside to come back and party with me because my house must be filled. Invite as many as you can until my house is full. And he does that and he fills the house with guests. And Jesus is clearly telling his audience here, that God won't stop. One way or another, God's going to fill his house. And that Jesus has come indeed to fill the house of God. And nothing will stop him from doing that. He's going to fill his father's house with or without religious people. And he says this in front of a bunch of the most religious people in his life. People that already said they want to kill him. But nothing was going to stop Jesus. He was too focused. Uh, and, and he said, my house will be full. Now, I wish I could tell you that's where Jesus stopped offending people. But in the very, ne very next paragraph in Luke chapter 14, he continues with maybe the most difficult teaching of his in all the Gospels. Here it goes. Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 33. Large crowds traveled with Jesus. So I guess this is the next scene, right? Turning to them, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Because suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will in, uh, ridicule you, saying the person began and wasn't able to finish. 
So Jesus is saying, count the cost before you come and follow me. You ever gotten into anything that maybe you didn't know what you were getting into until after the fact? Like a church or Westview Little League? <laughs> Jesus is saying following him can be like that sometimes. And counting the cost <clears throat> is truly important. Now, here he goes again, right, making things really awkward. I, I imagine the people that were following him. Jesus says, you got to hate your family to follow me in front of a bunch of families that were following him. <laughs> I imagine like a newlywed couple, like so romantic and like puppy love, holding hands, like following Jesus together. And this is so nice. And Jesus is talking and then Jesus says, uh, you can't follow me unless you hate your wife. Uh, can you imagine the, you know, like pulling his hand back and like <laughs> inching away from his wife? Or imagine a mother with her new baby. During good, good father, I sat right out there and held my daughter as, as we sang Good, Good Father, and I heard her singing Good, Good Father, and I knew she wasn't talking about me. And I wept like a baby because <laughs> she knows her father. But man, the thought of hating someone that close to me, that's tough. Now, Parents of teenagers are a little more <coughs> comfortable with the idea, which is okay because teenagers are just as comfortable with the idea of hating mom and dad sometimes. So it's a mutual feeling. <coughs> but we know how challenging and off-putting this is. What is Jesus saying? I think we know. He's saying you can't love him halfway. You can't authentically love Jesus casually. You can't love everybody else just like you always have and just kind of fit Jesus into the side of it. That's not how it works. Because when you know Jesus, when you know who he is, when you comprehend what he did for us, when you grasp the immensity of it all, what it meant for God to die on a cross and go to hell for us and overcome death for us, when you understand the depths of what he did for you, there is no way to love him back halfway. Now, it is impossible when you know that to love anyone or anything more than him. Now, does Jesus really want you to hate your parents or hate your kids or hate your siblings or, you know, your brothers and sisters? I don't think so. But I think what he's teaching us is that when you fall in love with him, you will find yourself falling so deeply in love with him for what he's done for you that your love for God will so outshine any love, any other kind of love that you've ever experienced or expressed before. Your love for God will be so great and so deep and so wide that every other kind of love you've ever known must, might as well be hate by comparison because your love for God is so great. It doesn't mean hate everybody else or just isolate yourself. What it means is that when you love God, his love fills your heart and he loves your wife and your kids and your brothers and sisters through you, and in a way, you love them even more than you ever could have with your own broken heart. 
when you fall in love with God so deeply because of what he did for you on the cross, no other love begins to compare. Now, I know still some parents will find this disturbing, and I understand it, but I want you to hear me, parents, real quick. I'm not going to do a parenting sermon series <clears throat> because most people at the story don't have children yet. But listen, i got to tell you something, parents. If you want to make sure your kids become adults who have no faith to speak of, if you want to ensure that your kids grow up believing that church is irrelevant to them and Jesus doesn't matter, if you want them to grow up checking none on that religious affiliation box or sleeping in every single Sunday morning, let them see you. Call yourself a Christian and then prioritize everything else above Jesus. Let them see you. Call yourself a Christian and then love money more than Jesus. Or love football more than Jesus, or even love them more than Jesus, because children more than anyone, they've got a nose for hypocrisy. And they'll see right through you. Because children more than anyone know you can't love someone like Jesus halfway. And when you love Jesus all the way, children more than anyone will know it. Because they'll see Jesus in you when you're that intentional and that focused. I have a friend who's a part of this church. He's one of the most intentional and focused men I've ever known. He owns Krav Maga Houston, which is a local fitness and self-defense uh, gym. Um, he is focused on his mission to love Jesus and make Jesus known, especially to the, the men in his life. <clears throat> his name is uh, CJ, and of course, true to form, CJ isn't here today because he's teaching children's church as we speak. He is the... Goliath of our children's church team, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, he's a giant man. And uh, our storytellers team, our video team, asked uh, him to sit down and share part of his story with us. And I'd like you to see what he had to say about part of his faith journey. So this is CJ. I don't really remember a time um, that I didn't uh, have faith or didn't believe in God. Um, and that's a little bit unusual, I think. I was deeply connected to nature and creation as a kid. Um, and it's just always been something that made really deep intuitive sense to me. More recently, uh, my wife and I had twins. They were born very early with substantial complications. Our smallest twin was a pound and 14 ounces. They weren't really sure he was gonna make it out of utero. Um, and when they pulled him out, he was in the level three NICU. For me, when there's a substantial challenge in my life, when you're worried about your children dying or you're worried about your children being okay, um, I tend to get a little quiet. Emotionally, spiritually, I get very still and um, obviously pray and just try to hold a calmness um, about me while I'm waiting for uh, the answer. The events that unfolded from the time they came out until 10 minutes ago are miraculous. So we, 
as a family, we've recognized um, the hand of God in our life, the immense amount of grace and mercy that we've received, and uh, we're trying to respond to that. I think doubt's a natural part of faith. Um, for me, I try to recognize uh, that there are almost two voices in my head. There's the voice that I choose to articulate to myself, and there's the voice that just kind of talks without any permission. And that's the voice that typically um, will sow the seeds of doubt. And um, I recognize that pretty quickly. I think the, the difficulty for most people is that no matter what you read or what you hear, that's outside of you. When people go on um, searching, searching for something or a faith journey, um, my, my view is that they tend to gather all the outside information and they never really go looking inside for what they believe. And they never sit down and um, take any time, any kind of consistent time to, to pray and see if there's something there. It's interesting when we depict Jesus in paintings, we, this skinny little guy that looks pretty frail. Um, most people don't recognize that he was a, a carpenter or, and or a stone, stonemason and probably was um, an alpha male. The courage that, that Christ showed uh, the night before his crucifixion and, and the courage to go through that um, to me is uh, something that's hard to comprehend. Uh, I think the thing that strikes me, I was at a red light and I realized, <clears throat> give me a second, I realized if all the world was perfect and the, I was the only one that needed saved, uh, that he would have done the same thing for me, just me, or just you. So when you consider that, uh, the way you treat other people will change. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that courage is every virtue at its testing point, and I think that Christ lived that. If all the world was perfect and I was the only sinner, he would have done everything that he did just for me and just for you. My prayer is that as Jesus lived with this fierce intention and focus, that that same focus would permeate your life, that you would let your life revolve around him and nothing else. Let everything else flow from your love for Jesus.